0: Hello and welcome to Tuesday Thanks, presented by Leeds Hospitality Group. I'm your host, Brian Proctor. Join me as we sit down to chat with yet another industry leader. Our guests come from a wide range of professions across the globe. We'll take the time to learn about their journey, where it started and where they are today. We use this opportunity to allow the guest to thank an individual or individuals that played a key role in their career understand what they learned from the experience and how they have incorporated it into their own development and growth. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Not only can it help your mental well-being, it can also improve your physical health. So join us as we share some great stories, thank a lot of wonderful people, and of course, share some laughs. Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Thanks. Today, I am joined by Anjali Agarwal, former Chief Operating Officer of AutoCamp, the hospitality company that is changing how you think about a boutique hotel experience. They're rooted in the timeless American tradition of hitting the road. Their properties take everything that's great about sleeping in the wilderness and make it even better with impeccable design and service. Anjali, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Brian, it's a true honor to be here with you and to be able to have this opportunity to take time to give thanks to those that have made this path possible for me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And you and I go back several years, so it's always great to reconnect. And this show has been able to do that with so many people. So thanks again. So as we typically do, let's just start at the beginning. How did you get interested in the hospitality business? Where did it all start for you?
1: Yeah, so I knew that I wanted to be in hospitality when I was seven years old, but I thought I wanted to be a chef and I would cook up all these creative concussions in my own kitchen. And it was just so much fun for me that you know my mom and I talked and I decided to enroll in hospitality school back in India. And simultaneously I was working at the Taj group of hotels as an intern and went through all of the different departments. And of course, being at the bottom of the totem pole, I would work in a kitchen chopping onions for 12 hours or peeling shrimp off tails. And I realized, well, this isn't letting me be as creative as I might've wanted, but I still love the industry and I love the people aspect of it. And so I started learning about what else is there in hospitality and how else can I contribute within this industry. So I learned about the world of revenue management and decided to learn about Cornell and decided to, to really had my heart set on Cornell, but first joined the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, which was rare for me because I was living in India at the time and needed a visa, but was able to get through a telephonic interview, which also at the time, this is, mind you, back in 2000s, was where get this job at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. And it was 2000, the summer of 2001, I was so excited. I packed up my bags, moved to Chicago and I was going, well, this is perfect. Life is great. I really, really enjoyed it. Learning so much and absorbing. And then of course, Brian, three months in September 11 happened. And I was an international intern. I was the most recent employee and I was only allowed to stay in the country as long as I was working on that visa. So very quickly I had to unpack or repack my bags and go back to India. So can Um, I
0: ask you a question? How did that come about? You're living in Mumbai, right? I guess. Right. right. And how does the Hyatt O'Hare come up on anybody's radar screen or how does that work?
1: I just found an opportunity there and reached out to them. And, you know, I had my whole pitch about how I loved hospitality, how I was all about customer service. And they agreed to interview me and got the job. Wow.
0: And is that before or after Cornell?
1: That's before Cornell. That's before, right? Yeah. Right out of my undergrad degree. And so I had a degree of course in hospitality and then learned a thing or two. And uh, yeah, that just happened from, from a remote phone call.
0: Now, how did the parents feel about you getting up and leaving India to go halfway around the world to Chicago?
1: Yeah, you know, my mom has always been extremely supportive of me pursuing my dreams. And I think that's a big part of who I am today is she had this ethos ingrained in me of you can do anything. And I'm sure it was hard on her because it was a somewhat conservative society, even working in hospitality at the time for women with around the clock hours wasn't something that was the norm but she was, she is one of a kind and really encouraged me. And I'm sure she didn't, she was a little bit anxious inside, but never expressed that to me and was really this pillar of support and go pursue your dreams. This is what you're meant to do.
0: And you just went off by yourself. They didn't come over with you and then go, wow, that's awesome. That's, that takes a lot of guts.
1: It does. And you know, I didn't know how to drive on this side of the road. So I had to learn that on the fly find an apartment, find all this furniture. So it was a big deal, but I settled in and I was living the American dream, so to speak in my mind. And then 9-11 happened.
0: So you you've got to repack and then you go where?
1: So I go back to Mumbai and I didn't let that deter me. It actually created in me this fire that went, that had me go, I want to go back to America, but I want to go back. the best hospitality school in the world. And that's what I set my heart on Cornell. And then everything I did from that point on was, how do I get into the school that everybody's talking about? And so at the time, this was 2001, Marriott was expanding very rapidly into India. And I was able to join the pre-opening team of the JW Marriott in Mumbai. And it was, again, an incredible learning opportunity. It was very far from where I lived, Mumbai being this major metropolitan, but I wanted the Marriott name on my resume. And so decided to make this hour and a half long commute each way to, and it was a very fulfilling experience because then I became this expert task force person, so to speak, that could help in the expansion of other properties. So it was was a great experience.
0: So when you say hour and a half commute, you were doing that daily?
1: Yes, five days a week.
0: Wow. Well, I was very fortunate, I think in 18 before the pandemic to go over to India on a scouting trip for properties with my company, Bridge Street at the time. And the traffic Mm -hmm. is overwhelming.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So I can't imagine the stress of an hour and a half commute each way every day. That's wow.
1: Right. Yeah. That wasn't fun at all. But I worked really hard because I knew that, that it would pay off in results. And so I'm grateful that I was able to get, get into Cornell because uh, that certainly had a huge impact on my life.
0: Yeah. So second time now, now you're coming back to the States. You're settling in upstate New York, beautiful, idyllic Cornell University. How was that experience?
1: It was fantastic. It was one of the most incredible times of my life because I was learning a whole lot. It's the style of education in America is very different from it is in India in that it's much, it really teaches you how to think. And I, I love that. And then, you know, meeting people from all over the world, the cultural immersion and the fun we had along the way, it was it was just incredible. Some of the best two years of my life.
0: Oh Yeah, no, that's awesome. There's just so many people that have gone through Cornell's hospitality program that are sprinkled in every aspect of the hospitality field, every, everywhere you go. So, so, and then you graduate from Cornell,
1: right. you got Corn- your master. Right. And I decided to join revenue management because I, I love numbers, very analytical. And I like the instant gratification of, I joined Orbitz and uh, the instant gratification of making a few changes and then seeing how that translated into actual dollars for the company was, was excellent. Four months into that role, I get a call from a classmate of mine at Cornell that goes, hey, we're, we're growing really fast. There's this company called Oxford Lodging. He was part of it. And we really want you to join. You got to meet the founders. And I said, "Why? Well, I just joined this job. I, I can't leave now. And he goes, just meet them. So I get on the phone and then fly to meet with Maki Barra, one of the co-founders, uh, who you know well, of course. And she wanted to hire me, and I tell her, Maki, I love this job, but can you just wait a year? And somehow, magically, she agreed to do that. Um, So a year later, I I joined the Charters Lodging Group, and that was a real flywheel for me in terms of accelerating my growth. And of course, that's how you and I met, but really met and made built these relationships with some of the best in the industry.
0: And so that's really, you know, it's always an interesting transition because you had worked with Taj you've worked at Marriott so you've been at the property level you've done all of those things now you're on the other side right you're representing the owner's interest in whatever hotels and resorts right. they own was that an easy transition for you to, or was it you know cuz i'm just an old hotel guy so for me that would be mind numbing to to go on the other side on that how about I you was, i was
1: really fortunate to have incredible mentors at that company of course rob and maki really taught me almost everything i know about the hotel real estate business combined with all of the other folks that worked there at the time and over the years that i was really really fortunate cuz i i was able to learn from a lot of different styles of asset management and investing and take a page from Maxine and Cody and Rich and Kirk and of course, Robin and Maki leading the way the whole time. So it was really this team that became my family and still is to this day, very, very close to almost all the people at Charters. I was there for 12 years, but they're really who helped me learn the ropes and taught me everything I know.
0: And so Charters Lodging, for the listener in Topeka, Kansas, had some amazing resorts, Mm -hmm. And some great hotels across North America. We were fortunate enough to work together on the Sheraton Dallas, which was at the time, and it may still well be, the largest Sheraton hotel in North America. I think it was 1,800 rooms. Right. Uh, It was the old Adams Mark in Dallas. And it just had a host of challenges being such a large hotel And it's kind of like picking who your favorite kid is, but did you have any of the favorite properties you were assigned to? Like which ones really, you know, tested you or challenged you and which ones you loved, you know, you know, going to see?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, certainly that whole Adams Mark portfolio that we converted into the Sheraton, two into Sheratons and one into Hyatt was, was I would say the most pivotal learning experience for me, because I helped underwrite the deal. We were such a small team. And that was a portfolio that really, I think, put charters on the map because it was 5,000 keys being acquired at once, negotiating with the brands, understanding the business plan, understanding the amount of renovation and how that translates into returns. So that that entire acquisition, as well as uh, then execution of the business plan was really what taught me a lot. And then after that, I would say the Novotel in New York, which we acquired in close to Times Square. That deal had a had a lot of hair on it for a lot of reasons. You know, there was a two pipe to four pipe conversion. There was a huge revenue management opportunity in changing the market segmentation to actually attract some of the higher rated corporate demand. And then I and I was able to really lead that deal as well from. Cradle to Grave and ultimately a very, very successful transaction where we sold it. So, and that's really what ultimately elevated me to run asset management for charters. So I would say that's definitely a favorite as well.
0: So was the Novotel New York or Novotel Times Square your first, as you say, cradle to fruition deal?
1: Before that, there was also the Hyatt Place Waikiki. That was also a very successful transaction. So the Novotel wasn't my first, but it was the, I would say it was the one that really elevated me to, you're now ready to teach everybody else what you know about asset management, really be a mentor to the rest of the team. And, and that process was really gratifying to be able to you know take these really bright minds that had great ideas, and help them, coach them, support them, and help them understand how to create magic in assets.
0: Well, that was one of the things I always enjoyed working with Rob Klein and Maki and you and Maxine was, you know, I know you guys were under a ton of pressure because the Sheraton portfolio that you bought or the Adams Mark portfolio that you got was just a huge financial challenge, right, to begin with. And the pressure to make that perform for investors and everything else was through the roof, I got to believe. And what was impressive was how all of you were so easy to work with as it relates to, okay, what do we do that's best for the property? What do we do that's best for the brand? And what do we do that's best for the employees? And it was never never once in any meeting that I ever felt that it was like, all right, they're they're cutting this to get that, and the employee's is mm-hmm. going to be hurt or anything of that nature, and that whole ability to do that, I want to believe, stemmed from Robin Mackey's vision of the company, and then you guys were able to execute on it as as we kind of went through that process of rebuilding those two buildings, the Denver one and the Dallas one. Am I accurate in that assumption of? you know, that's how it kind of was, because that's what I perceived it to be.
1: Yeah, 100%. You're, you're absolutely right that we acquired this portfolio. We started the process in 2007, and we closed on it in February of 2008. And so from a market timing perspective, we're very quickly entering the Great Recession. And cash flow in those early years was a significant challenge because the properties weren't renovated starwood was you know very was an excellent partner a really collaborative partner because we were able to work together to put the brand on the property while the renovation was still in process i think that really helped us drive the demand the little demand that there was during the renovation during the recession. but but certainly yes you're right there was a tremendous amount of pressure because of the timing of when we acquired the assets and then going into the recession which which, of course, was something that not a lot of us had predicted. But, you know, yes, the culture is driven at the top always. And Rob and Maki have always believed in creating a very, very strong culture. And so going back to we really believe if you if the team is is happy and satisfied, then, you know, we're going to get the the results. And uh, that was certainly true. And we, we always you guys, Starwood, everybody that we work with were excellent excellent partners. I mean, I learned so much from even Ray Hammer because he was just genius in how he would uncover, leave no stone uncovered in terms of trying to find 40,000 here, 50,000 there. And then, you know, for that asset, a hundred million room revenue asset. even those little dollars it helped add up and get us through those difficult two years. And then it really became an asset that exceeded expectations and exceeded our our unwritten performance because during the recovery.
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the other thing that was fun with that property it was so big that you could try things. And, and and you guys allowed them to try things, and I'll never forget when Dave Swift, the director yep. of sales and marketing and Ray put together that Southwest Airlines yep. um, training and they took I forget which building it was, building the South C. Town yeah the towers or whatever and you know on the surface of things that sounds like a really wacky idea and why would you do that it's you know low rated but i mean it was filling i think 600 rooms a night or something it um, was
1: millions of dollars in income yeah. and revenue and they really wowed they made southwest feel that this is their building and it it, it really was we had a lounge for them yep. and you're right, they they really wowed them with the site visit and created an experience i don't think they would have had anywhere else the physical building certainly helped cuz we had that separate tower but they did wonders with it
0: yeah i remember walking into that they had you know they had built that southwest pilots lounge or whatever right where they could come and meet and i always i always laughed and i i tell the story to this day as i walked in the first day i walked in to see it when it was all done and in one corner of the room, if you'll remember, they had that cardboard cutout of a cockpit. I that, do
1: remember that now.
0: Right? And, and I said, what the heck is that? They said, oh, that's where the pilots could come in and practice. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, Southwest pilots are learning how to fly a plane with a cardboard cutout? Where's all the technology and stuff? But it was it was just so funny. I mean, they just had such creative stuff that they were having fun with. So, Absolutely. That was always good fun. So now you were with them for a long time, right? Like,
1: right. 12 years,
0: 12 years. And when you came in, I know I'm regressing a bit, but when you came in, what, what did you come in as? I uh, was an analyst. An analyst. And so you worked all your way up to partner and SVP or something, right?
1: Right. I was EVP and. Or EVP. Yeah. Running, running asset management. And what was
0: your favorite role within your, your time with charters? If you think back, just pure fun of, forget the responsibility and the pressures, pure fun of what you were doing. What'd you, would you love?
1: You know, the early years were ext- extremely gratifying because I was learning so much. And unlike in a larger group, when, when we were analysts at Charters, we were running the deal. You know, we were doing everything from underwriting it, doing the lender tours, meeting with the property team to then executing the business plan with a sense of urgency. So, I was a sponge and I was just able to absorb and learn a ton in those early years. And then I would say, you know, when I was able to give that back to this new crop of aspiring leaders, that was really gratifying as well.
0: How many people do you think you mentored with at Charters when, you um, know, once you got to that level?
1: Right. We were still a small team, but we had, you know, the analyst program was two or three years. So I would say about 10 to 15 people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. and So we've talked a lot about charters, which really, I guess, gave you the foundation of your success moving forward. I mean, obviously Cornell gives you a great educational base, but that practical experience, cause w- what did you do at Orbitz? I know we skipped over Orbits real quickly. And that was to me when I was doing my research. I didn't know you worked at Orbits. And Orbits to me used to be this big, big company. And now it's I, I don't know if it's the shell of itself or I just don't know it. But what were you doing there?
1: Yeah, so I was overseeing revenue management for nine states in the southeast. And unlike in some of the other groups, orbits would have this separate analyst. Or, or analytical function that was different than the market managers. So I would really be the one controlling all of the placement, the margins. And I think that the experience in revenue management that I had is what really attracted Rob and Maki to, and drew them to my experience because, as you well know, revenue management can make or break a deal. And understanding those levers is really contributes to maximizing value for an asset.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So again, fast forward. Now you go through your years of charters where you are working on behalf of the ownership group, right? Mm -hmm. And you're there to maximize the value of the asset and do all of those cool things. And then you jump from charters to this upstart company or startup company, I guess, whichever way you want to look at it called Mm -hmm. AutoCamp, where now you are the protector of the brand right because mm-hmm. you're creating the brand and it's a little bit of a different mindset i would imagine from being right. and you know on the ownership side to now saying okay we're going to develop a brand we're going to make this brand and we're going to move forward so how did that jump from charters to autocamp happen yeah. I'm assuming someone came knocking on your door but how did that whole transition happen
1: yeah that's a, that's a good story. Well, I started after 12 years of start, uh, charters, I, I started hearing from a lot of my friends on the marketing side about trends in hospitality. And a lot of what I heard was experiential moments. RV sales are on the rise, double digits. And this is in the 2018 timeframe. Instagrammable moments, creating true memories, differentiating, outdoor lodging, and um and one of our executive retreats at charters happened to be at the first auto camp location in Russian river. And we all, I was, but I think we all were just blown away by that experience. It was this really unique experience of mid century, modern designed clubhouses, uh, but very well equipped airstreams that felt that we didn't have to bring anything with us. And, um, I, at the time, twelve. this is 12 years into my journey at Charters, I decided to take a sabbatical and uh, pursue my passion to travel with my two young children and my husband and spend some time with my aging parents. So I took a seven-month sabbatical. And this is really fortuitous, Brian, because about three months into the sabbatical, I get a call from a recruiter that isn't even from our industry. I'd never met or known them before. And she she goes, hey, have you heard of this company called AutoCamp? Um, They're looking for a CEO. And it, it was, you know, it sounds like it fell in my lap. It wasn't quite that easy because I went through a series of interviews during my travels with, of course, our CEO, Neil and the broader team. And I think the feedback ultimately that I got was, we think you're awesome, but actually we need this other development type role. So this may not work out. And I remember saying to Neil, okay, but you know what, I'm going to be back in the Bay next month. Let's just meet for lunch. Um, and we did. And, you know, I, I joined the company a few weeks later. So it's, I think it's really goes back to some extent about showing them that you really want this uh, and show it, having that hustle of not taking no for an answer, because that's really what, what uh, how it worked out for me.
0: And so when you joined AutoCamp, how big was it? How many Actual locations did you have at that beginning point?
1: Yeah, we just had, you know, what I would call a proof of concept in Russian River. It was 35 keys. It was largely friends and family investors. And after I came in, we were opening our first 100 plus key property in Yosemite. And so opening that property was a true learning experience for all of us because it was at that scale. And we had institutional capital raised by that time with fantastic partners and Whitman Peterson. So it was, it was an incredible learning experience. I think every iteration since then has been a continued improvement of the product and experience.
0: And so one of the things, I mean, I've been fascinated by the company because A, I love the concept. I'm not a wilderness guy. You know, my daughters think, you know, a Hilton Garden Inn with two double beds is camping because we don't have our own room. You know, this was when they were younger. But so I've always been fascinated by this company. But one of the things that's always intrigued me is where do you find all these Airstreamers? I mean, are they built specifically for you guys or how? Yeah
1: so we have an exclusive agreement with airstream we have our custom designed airstreams that we've designed and they manufacture for us so yes it's it's a it's a really important and competitive moat for us in having that exclusive agreement with them
0: and as your locations have expanded how did the branding come along of you know what's the the base of service offerings right because Probably when they started at Russian River, it wasn't as expansive as it is now because you have a very, you have very cool designed main buildings and the like. So how did how did that all evolve from that original view, or was it always part of the original view?
1: Yeah, I think the design it certainly has evolved, but I would say the bones of the design, the mid-century modern design, is, is something that. Neil DePala, our CEO, he's just a creative genius, and I think a large part of the credit would go to to him and, of course, the design team that he hired that were all very very talented. The part that I would say did evolve, one of the biggest learnings for us after we opened Autocamp Yosemite and did our, our large customer survey was We found that we're a lodging company that doesn't actually have any F and B. So if you think back, it was created as a camping, it had access to the great outdoors. And usually in a camping concept, people bring in their own food, but we very quickly realized that this customer, well, they run the gamut, but certainly we had a large majority of customers that didn't want to bring in their own food. And they wanted to have, whether it was five course barbecue kit that you could purchase and Cook at the campfire by your airstream, or it was just purchasing, you know, a bowl of chili from our from our general store. So I think that was one of the biggest eye-opening experiences. Was we've got to develop an F and B program, and we've got to hire F and B people because that's a customer expectation that isn't being met right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, with a startup company like that, it's fun, right? Because you've got a very small group, much mm-hmm. like you know, much like your time at charter, a very small group controlling everything, and Just watching the evolution, it's almost like watching your child grow into different things. And that was one of the things I loved during my time at Starwood and the new builds team is because, you know, being in on the ground foot of element and Aloft and W really getting to see, okay, this was Barry Sternlich's vision of a W and people don't understand that W was never supposed to be a luxury brand. Mm -hmm. The only reason it turned into a luxury brand, in my humble opinion, is because they were in big major cities and it just so happened that they were getting average rates of, you know, the same as luxury and it kind of morphed into that. So watching that evolve was always very exciting to me and being a part of it was fun. When you guys were growing AutoCamp from these first couple of initials, what were you looking for when like, how do you do a site location? to pick a location, because I, I know a couple of years ago, you and I connected on a possibility up in Toronto, in Ontario. I don't know if that ever came to fruition or not, but how, what was the process like when you guys were looking to grow that?
1: Yeah, we're very thoughtful about not only the sites that we select, but also the timing of which one comes next, because of, as you mentioned, we're a small group and there's limited resources. But I would say the criteria primarily are within a three to five hour drive from a major urban metropolitan. And that's really important for AutoCamp to be able to get those 300 plus ADRs that are, are needed for this level of investment into the deal. And so that's, that's really important. The major urban metropolitan is of course defined by certain populist criteria. And, um, and then it's, you know, where do we wanna strategically grow to cover a broader footprint? California, and perhaps this could be because we're based here, but we we see as a real evergreen market, there's a ton of outdoor demand in California. And so we're willing, as you've seen with Russian River and Yosemite, to have multiple locations that cater to the same, same metropolitan in the Bay Area. Of course, Yosemite also attracts folks from LA. Um, but after that, we targeted Boston by opening Cape Cod, and then we targeted New York by opening the Catskills. So it's really about having that proximity where it's not too close where people feel, all right, this is just a day trip. I'm going to go home, but it's not Mm -hmm. too far even for the corporate customer to do a one or two day retreat and then be able to get people back into their offices. So I would Mm -hmm. say distance is the biggest criteria. And then the second is um, an, an iconic outdoor destination, whether that's a national park, whether that's a really stunning beach or national seashore, or it's a very popular wine country region but it's got to have something that draws people in that's iconic from an outdoors perspective
0: and then is there like a magic number that you look to in terms of how many units there should be so that to your point if we're going to spend x and we need to get mm-hmm. x plus whatever return what is there a magic size or does it just morph into whatever region you're in
1: There is a magic size because of the unit economics, certainly the margins are ideal if you can get to the 80 to 100 plus key range.
0: Got it. And did you find your, again, this is all, you know, I could have a whole call on just AutoCamp just because you've started with one and have grown it. But did you find your customer changed throughout the growth cycle? Did it become corporate? Did it become meetings? Did it stay as individuals or was it, or is the blend of all of those still virtually close to the original?
1: You know, the beauty of AutoCamp and one of the other things that we learned through the process is it attracts a very broad range of customers from our, what we like to call outdoor curious. So we get a lot of these customers who say, we don't really like camping, but we love AutoCamp, right? So they're not really a camping customer, but they're willing to rough it out to come to auto camp because it's not really roughing it out and it's camping without the fuss. And on the other end of the gamut is your avid backpacker who's been rock climbing, who's done a bunch of trails, but just wants to splurge and experience the outdoors in this unique environment. So the customer runs a broad gamut and we try to really learn from two or three questions that we ask in a pre-arrival call and how to cater to the, the experience based on who the customer is. As far as corporate... It's something that we've always had in in terms of corporate would fill our midweek. I think what's changed since the pandemic is that midweek isn't quite as much of a problem as it used to be pre-pandemic because now you have leisure and you have people that work from home that are able to visit the properties midweek. So we've actually seen that those peaks and valleys of demand stabilize more and that's been really beneficial. But on the corporate side, we have a lot of repeat group business and, you know, all of the the top Bay Area companies to your, to your budding startups. We get a lot of those and a lot of them come back.
0: Yeah. So I kind of started this conversation and I got off track because it's just, it's such a fascinating story, but more about you. So you, again, on the ownership side, now you're the COO, the head honcho to make sure that everything executes perfectly based upon the vision and everything. How was that transition for you going from a position of oversight from an owner dealing with the properties and the brands and the teams to now being that person? How did you find that transition for you personally?
1: Yeah, it's certainly been a great learning experience. I think what's unique of, and perhaps not so unique, but what I love about the AutoCamp structure is it's it's all of it in one right so we're also an investor we're also acquiring and sourcing the deals partnering and investing our own money similar to a private equity gplp structure and then as you said you know we're we're also creating this well-loved brand that's unique in a fairly unconventional space so i think that experience i i've i've learned a ton i think there's been more because of how new the industry is and because we're considered the leader or the pioneer, there's certainly in the early days more that we didn't know than we knew. And we were, and so we have this term that we use via MacGyver, and it's one of our core values because it's really about figuring it out. And mm-hmm. we like to hire people that may not have all the answers or know it all, but have a creative way to figure it out. And that's really been, I think, the ethos of the kind of people we like to hire. You have to love the outdoors and then you have to have this ability to get things done and figure it out and be a MacGyver.
0: And I love that. And then currently they're all owned and managed by AutoCamp, correct? There's no franchising model yet. Do you see, and without giving away company secrets, obviously, but is that something that you could see as a possibility down the road is franchising them? In addition to just owned and managed or?
1: Certainly could be a possibility down the road. I think it's important in the early years to control the brand and the experience is I'm sure you saw from your days at Starwood, but as we continue to grow and our goal is to be the global leader in outdoor lodging with 100 locations in 10 years. So the paths to getting to those 100 locations down the road could absolutely include include franchising possibilities.
0: Yeah, Cool. Well, listen, it's a fantastic story, fantastic brand. Like I said, I could do hours on just talking about, you know, how it all came together. But in the essence of time, I know you're busy and it is Tuesday after all. So this is the time of the show where I'd like to turn the mic back over to you and allow you to thank one or as many people as you would like that have made a positive impact on your career and your life. So young lady, the microphone is yours.
1: Thank you, Brian. This is a pleasure to have a chance to do. So first off, I'd like to thank Rob Klein, who's just such an incredible mentor and a close friend to me. And together with Maki, really taught me everything I know about the real estate business in terms of being able to find value where others aren't looking and go after deals that have a lot of hair on it, but then really dig deep and get creative and then be in this race against time to execute on a business and what I've always respected about Rob is he has this ability to really elevate others even ahead of himself. And I've seen this across everybody that he that works with him. And so he was the one that nominated me for 40 under 40 MA award. He would often recognize and promote me perhaps when I was 80% ready, and then let me figure out the 20% in the job, which I really appreciated. And then I really admired his network. I, I remember the when, when I was an analyst, one of the first real estate conferences I went to, and I just admired how he knew everyone in the room and could work the room. And today, when when I go into those conferences, I know a few people, and a lot of that has to do with the folks that I've met through Rob and, and the Charters Network. Definitely, Maki Berra, as I mentioned, she hired me and really believed in me and taught me she's an incredible negotiator and what i learned from maki was how to be able to share our perspective in a respectful way how to really pitch a deal with passion and allow that passion to show through and telling the story and how to build relationships which is so integral to our business and um She really embodies this work hard, play hard mentality. And that's something that I I know I see you laughing because I know (laughs) anyone who's who's encountered what we call charters lounging, which is the company name after it goes dark, Mm -hmm. knows what I mean. And and it always elicits a reaction, good or bad. (laughs) But, (laughs) uh, But, you know, we'd spend 12, 15 hours working on a deal and then we'd really find a way to celebrate our wins. And I think that's really important. And then, of course, Neil DePaula, the CEO and founder of AutoCamp. You know, joining, joining AutoCamp and working alongside Neil was extremely inspiring for me because he's, he's just a creative genius. This analogy may be a stretch, but I like to use the analogy of the iPhone. And Steve Jobs didn't go about trying to create a better BlackBerry. He created with the touchscreen something that no one knew they wanted, but they just mm-hmm. fell in love. And to some extent, I I liken that to AutoCamp, no one knew they wanted this incredible outdoor lodging experience with a connection to nature that had the comforts of of a boutique hotel, that had hammock gardens, that had these incredible mid-century modern spa-inspired bathrooms. But Neil was able to envision that being an outsider from the industry and really was able to blow people away with the design and the concept. And what I, what I really have learned and, and respect in Neil is this drive to keep innovating. So at AutoCamp, our net promoter scores would be inching towards world-class. And yet, you know, he'd run, in the midst of a global pandemic, he'd run these calls about how we can get this feedback loop from our customers to continue to evolve and improve our product and experience. So not having this um, sort of, sense of satisfaction with all right we're we're meeting our guest satisfaction scores but it's like well how do we continue to create something that they don't know they want but they're going to be surprised and delighted by how do we continue to wow them and and really above all you know he trusted me with such key decisions in running the operating company and challenged me to figure things out and you know there's a lot as I was mentioning that we didn't know and he allowed me and trusted The decisions I made, which was which was really really gratifying. And uh, last, I'd like to thank Katie Hara, who is somebody that I had the good fortune of hiring very soon after I joined AutoCamp, and we hired her in as a manager. But very quickly realized that she is exceptional and found a place for her on our executive team. And she was really my rock, my right hand throughout the pandemic, as a lot of us went through opening and closing properties to exposures of the team and not having the, enough folks because of exposures to even service our, our guests to finding talent in these remote locations in an extremely challenged and constrained labor environment. She really was and is a goldmine that I'm very thankful to have had the chance to work with.
0: Well, I mean, those are, are four great people. I'm fortunate enough to know two of them and couldn't couldn't agree with you more. I'm actually... Uh, on a later episode of the show, trying to get Mr. Klein, I think he's agreed to the show. I, I have I can't confirm or deny it yet, but Mr. <laughs> Klein hopefully will will be a guest. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. But I guess my new nickname for you now, when I see you next, will be Miss MacGyver. Uh, but <laughs> I, love- I want to take the time to again thank you for doing the show. This has been a great a great episode. I love the story. I mean, if you think about it, a small, young girl coming from India, getting to San Francisco, being chief operating officer of a world-class, you know, break the bank type of brand. It's just a great story. And I think it'll be great for young ladies out there in the industry to hear it and to see your tenacity. And you just plugged forward and kept going and did some amazing things. So thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it
1: appreciate and, the invitation Brian. It's been oh, a pleasure.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And then as I always end the show with, if it's Tuesday, let's make sure you all go out there and thank somebody it's going to make their day, but it's also going to make you feel better. So, once again, Anjali, thanks so much for being on the show and we'll catch up soon.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. Take care.
0: you enjoyed the show today and thanks so much for tuning in we really appreciate it if you would like to be a guest on the show so that you can thank someone for their role in your career please reach out to me via our Tuesday Thanks website at www.tuesdaysthanks.com remember a sincere thank you goes a long way to making someone feel appreciated and can make their day so until next time be well Be safe, and please don't be afraid to tell someone thanks. Chat soon.